Hello, and welcome to The Scrum, a podcast about politics from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. I'm Adam Riley. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you already know that the world of Massachusetts politics can be a little navel-gazy. In particular, it's really, really Boston-centric. From the MBTA to the Olympics debacle, political chatter around these parts tends to be all Eastern Mass all the time. But there's more to the state than its capital city, way more. So Peter Kadzis and I sat down with Stan Rosenberg, Senate president and, I should mention, representative of a few of the state's western districts, to talk about what folks around here get wrong about the Wild West. While we were at it, we also asked the Senate president to play media critic, and he had some interesting things to say about how we do or don't do our jobs. Take a listen. So I know we have you for a finite amount of time. Um, yeah, no more than three hours. Is that, <laughs> is that correct? <laughs> I'd love it if Peter, it was Peter's idea to ask you to talk to us about what people in the Boston area, general public and the media don't get right about Western Mass or what we don't think about when we think about that part of the state that we should. Peter, um, do you want to just explain why you thought that was a, a good way to start with the Senate president? Every now and then you read between the lines in the daily papers that someone, you know, from Worcester or to the West will make a complaint or an observation that Beacon Hill just doesn't understand the rest of the state, that that um, state government is excessively Boston-centric, Boston and its suburbs. And um, it strikes me as being true. I mean, you go to the western part of the state, you go to Amherst, and you, you're in rural New England, which is different from coastal New England whether you're in Maine or whether you're in New Hampshire, whether you're the whole state of Vermont. should mention that you use some air quotes around rural New England. Well, it's you move west of Worcester and there's no T. There's, you know, one big highway, essentially, you know, the Mass Pike. Um, is that a crazy notion? So we're the same as you, except uh, we have less population density. We aspire to the same things, you know. People raise their families, they want to have good paying jobs, they want to have a college education for their kids, they want to have safe, passable roads, they'd love to have some more public transit because all we have is buses, we don't have rail, we don't have, uh, well, we have a little bit of rail now, it's coming back a little bit, but it's uh, not coming to Boston, it's uh, going north uh, into Vermont and up to Canada. And so um, we, uh, we have a lot of va value and assets out there, beautiful land and we have uh, the flagship campus of the university. We have uh, several major financial institutions like Mass Mutual and Berkshire Life. So we have some of everything you have here. We just don't have as much of it. But we also um, have this feeling, and it's as you pointed out very well, it's not just Western Mass. You can go down to Southeastern Mass and hear the exact same concerns, and you can hear a variation of it when you go up to Northeastern Mass, which is once you get outside of the metropolitan Boston area, it feels like you're not part of Massachusetts, not because you aren't from Massachusetts, but just because the policies and the directions are really um, uh, metropolitan Boston area centered. For your constituents, does it bug them that 
a lot of us out here have this mental map of the state that, that ends would, at Framingham. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. It does annoy people. We do not live in New York, and that's the joke all the time. And by the way, the joke is made here all the time too, good naturedly, but still, it just it it uh, demonstrates an attitude like you are so far away. You know, people think, do I have to bring my passport? Do I have to pack an overnight bag in order to drive the two hours to Springfield or to Western Massachusetts? I got to ask you because I uh, remember going around with a, a certain press aide who I won't name, a then press aide, when Tom Riley was running for governor. I don't remember how I mischaracterized the boundary between Central Mass and Western Mass, but I'm pretty sure I did and th that he was right. And he gave me hell about it. Where does central Massachusetts end and where does western Massachusetts so we, start? Out our way, we think of Worcester County as central Mass. And western Mass is the western Mass counties, Berkshire, Hampshire, Hamden, and Franklin. If you think of the county boundary between uh, Worcester County and Franklin County, you are basically at the dividing line for western Mass. Okay, that's helpful. And anyone who happens to listen to this uh, who might be tempted to make the same mistake I did can now avoid embarrassing themselves there you like go. I did. So um, you obviously have been in this body for a long time before becoming Senate president, but I'm wondering if, given that your predecessors were um, men and women of the eastern part of the state, if you have had to work to get your members since becoming president to take the, the full range of the state uh, a little more seriously, or if the Senate has always had that kind of uh, global mindset when it comes to Massachusetts. Have you had to push? Yeah, no, I don't think I've had to push. I, I think it's a little bit more global, as you say. I mean, there are differences, there's no question. Um, and when we form coalitions, between Western Mass, Southeastern, and Northeastern Massachusetts, we can um, help move some of the policies so that it's more fairly balanced for the regions outside the metropolitan Boston area. But you don't have to hit people over the, the head with a two by four to get them to understand. And that was part of our reason for doing Commonwealth Conversations when we divided the state up into eight regions and we spent a day in each region and we asked each senator to go to at least two outside of their own. And it was for the purpose of being able to experience and see parts of the state that we may never have been to. And certainly, even if we had been there, we may not have drilled down and got to see the world from the perspective of, of a Lowell or a Lawrence or a Fall River or a Cape Cod or whatever. And so um, uh, I think people came away from that experience with a greater appreciation of the diversity of the Commonwealth. And even though we're a state, you can drive anywhere within three hours unless you get stuck in traffic. We're very small states. You can get anywhere in very short order. Um, it's amazing how parochial we become as legislators because we're so focused on our backyard. Well, let me ask you a question about how your backyard, your immediate constituents, view the problems of the MBTA. Here in Boston, I think quite reasonably, I got here in part by T today, um, obsessed and very much focused on the tea, especially since last winter. But um, I, I'm sure your constituents are sympathetic in part, but totally. how do they see this intense focus on the tea in the state house? They resent it when it's only being focused, when we're only focused on the tea and not thinking about public transit in the rest of the state, which is why, again, we formed a, a rural transit caucus 
that brought together all the folks from all over the Commonwealth outside of the metropolitan Boston area that doesn't have, you know, the kind of small rural uh, transportation systems uh, based on buses and vans that we have. And uh, basically, we were able, as a result of that, to get regional transit authority needs on the table. And now every time we talk MBTA and actually work on a bill, there are components that relate to regional transit authorities. And that's how it should be. I'm sure most of our listeners aren't familiar. I'm certainly not with what one of the most pressing needs in terms of rural transportation. Thank you for asking. I was going to try to rural fake transportation. it. But... Okay. <laughs> um, uh, the number of routes, the frequency of routes, and uh, we have very small systems. Um, there's almost no weekend service in most parts of the Commonwealth where you have RTAs. They, it's growing a little bit now, but historically there's been no weekend service, no night service in large uh, parts of the Commonwealth. And so what we take, take advantage of and, and for granted here of being able to get on the T at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock or 1 o'clock in the morning, you can't do that out in western Massachusetts. And you probably can't do that in southeastern Massachusetts or northeastern Massachusetts. So we have to grow those systems. What is the sort of best case scenario that might realistically come to pass when it comes to growing those systems? I mean, looking ahead five years or 10 years, what's, uh, what's the best that people in your uh, part of the state could hope to, to obtain transit-wise? It's, in, it's incremental, and it, what they'll be looking for is uh, more bus routes and more frequent service. So you're not talking about you know big new train lines, for oh, example. We we uh, yes, but not MBTA type train lines. We're talking about not not subway, obviously. We're talking about trying to get um, rail from uh, from Western Massachusetts all the way into Boston. Right now, you can go as far as Fitchburg from the east, and you have to go to Fitchburg to get on the train to go to Boston. Eventually, that ought to be fixed, and you ought to be able to do it from uh, Springfield and, and, you know, take a train from Northampton or Greenfield to Springfield and then from Springfield to Worcester and Worcester to Boston. Might there be some negative unintended consequences if um, that vision of transportation that you've described came to pass? I mean, I, I just wonder if for some people in Western Massachusetts, being detached from the sort of Boston area uh, urban core is is one of the things that makes living in the western part of the state desirable. And whether if it all of a sudden became really easy to hop out from Boston to uh, Amherst or points west or, or vice versa, given the dearth of affordable housing in the Boston area, for example, if you might see development in western Mass that some people who've lived there for a while might bristle at. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the trains run both ways which means people who live in Western Mass would be able to work in Eastern Massachusetts and, and have better economic opportunities and uh, be able to, given, again, how small the state is, be able to be uh, that much more able to take advantage of the cultural and other amenities that we have here in, Western, in Eastern Massachusetts and vice versa. People from here can more easily travel out there. If you've never been to the Bridge of Flowers in Shelburne Falls, you haven't lived. I have never been to the and Bridge you, of Flowers And you have Shelburne to get Falls. yourself to the Bridge of Flowers in Shelburne Falls. And when you go to that village, which stopped in 1954, you have take a step back in time, and it's intentional. People, that is our lifestyle in that community. And people visit, and they love it, and they keep coming back. And so the trains run in both directions, and there's great advantage to having them once they're there. 
and they will be benefit. Are there uh, hermits in Boston living and not not ever coming out of their condos? Of course. And are there hermits living in Western Massachusetts who'd rather you all stay away? Of course. But uh, we're talking about the real world and most people. Um, let's talk about Springfield for a second, mm -hmm. which um, is a city that I, I think needs more help than most people anywhere in the state, other than Springfield, may realize. Um, to me, it's a, a, a cruel irony that the, 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 the gambling that's come to Springfield, which was supposed to be such a shot in the arm, I've always been skeptical Gaming. that ga gambling um, is... Oh, I see you guys have discussed this before. Yeah, no, we're very, we're very spontaneous. The sizing back of the, the, the gambling facility there strikes me as bait and switch. But that's not what I'm asking you to talk about. <clears throat> to me, it's also indicative of the challenges, the run of bad luck that Springfield seems to, to face. Um, what sort of help do you think Springfield needs to make some progress forward? So, um, I don't think the gaming uh, situation is as bad as you think. <laughs> well, that's I guess good I just took size. <laughs> um, so, um, it is a common pattern. Uh, that once a licensee receives uh, a license and approval, that um, uh, that uh, changes in the plans will be um, will be created, and that's why we gave uh, this gaming commission some tools that uh, no other gaming commission in the country has. And that's a discussion for another day. But the point sure. is, we want to hold them accountable to build the product they said they were going to build, and within reason, some changes can happen that don't compromise what they promised. So I wouldn't use that as an example of sort of getting the short end of the stick. You know, the truth is that it is a city in decline, but so are other cities in Massachusetts, and so are cities all across America. And it's a community-by-community -community, uh, effort to find the leadership and the vision that will help move the, uh, the community forward in spite of uh, the fact that the, it may appear that their better days and their best days are behind them. Uh, but many cities have reinvented themselves, and uh, Springfield is working hard at that. It is the home to some very significant um, uh, assets, uh, uh, you know, major employers. The Bay State Health System is a very, very major hospital uh, system and employs a significant number of people in very high-quality health care. Mass Mutual is one of the largest insurance companies in America, and it's located in uh, in Springfield. So it's it's had its... It's uh, hard times, and uh, and it, the leaders there, both in the in the elected and the business and community leadership sectors, are working together to try to find the path forward for them. And it has the student prints, which is high on my list of places I have never been, but have wanted to go for a <laughs> long you time. You know, when you finish uh, your tour of the Bridge of Flowers, come right on down 91 and get off of the, at the student prints and the fort, which are uh, tied together. All right, I'm, I'm going to do it. I promise you Very I'm going to do good. it this, this fall. We also wanted to see if we could get you to play media critic a bit, which we kind of tried to get you to do in the, the first mm. portion of this chat. Um, we are interested in your take on what the political media uh, here in Massachusetts, especially in, in the Boston area, might not be getting right about goings-on on Beacon Hill uh, right now, with you as Senate President, Bob DeLeo as House Speaker, and Charlie Baker as Governor, uh, a lot of us, you know, make claims about what's happening in the building, 
uh, and maybe don't fully get it or get it wrong. So we would love you to set us and our colleagues straight or give us some constructive criticism if you have any. Well, so I'm, since I'm not in the media, I can't possibly set you straight, but I may have a few opinions and a few <laughs> thoughts along the way here. The lawmaking process is not simple, easy, and clear cut. And with the increasing challenges of, of the media, given how we've, we're transitioning from the print uh, you know, the overwhelming strength of print press to electronic and now to social media. Um, it's got to be really challenging if you're on the media side to figure out how to pay the bills and be able to actually cover politics uh, in, in the way that, it, uh, that I would hope and, and think that it should be covered. Um, it, it requires a lot of vigilance and a lot of patience to follow the process and to really engage with um, legislators and members uh, in, in a way that will really educate the public about what's happening. And so my biggest concern is everything is done in, in sound bites and clips and, and very short stories that are not uh, uh, written at the highest level of academic achievement, shall we say. So the, what I have imagined, when I go back and I look at the newspapers of the 1800s and whatever in the library, long, long, long stories about virtually everything and just so much detail and depth. And even my own experience when I first got elected, the regional newspaper of record, I would get a call from a reporter every single day and some days from two and even three reporters, not just five days a week, but sometimes even six and occasionally on the seventh day as well when we should have been resting whichever is our resting day. <laughs> and we, we, and so I was in the newspaper constantly. People knew everything I was doing. They said, how do, you, how do you have the bandwidth to work on so many things? Which, by the way, we all do. But our constituents know so little of what we do because the media, uh, uh, the ability of the media to cover as much as they used to, even just in 25 years since I was elected 28 years ago for the first time, even just that 28 years to see that, that change. So we're trying to work and, and be as open as possible. We have press avails here and you know, bringing people into the office and having conversations, but we do so much more up here than the people actually realize. And so if I had one wish, it would be that you folks had much more bandwidth like you used to so that you could cover much more about what we're doing so they understand how hard people work up here to get it right and to really address the problems and the issues of the day. It's really about sort of the, the, the quick hits that are going on now. And it's not only in the social media and the electronics, because that's the nature of it, the soundbite, but it's also in the print media. Because, oh. again, they, have, they just don't have the column inches anymore because they don't have the advertisers, so they don't have the revenue, so they can't hire as many reporters, blah, 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 blah. And by the way, I would say it also, I do, you know, do a lot of, <clears throat> of TV coverage. It applies to us in TV, too. You have uh, maybe a couple minutes on a given day to try to sum up some incredibly complex uh, proceeding that's happening at the State House that has a long history and that, that will lead to a great deal of process afterward, and we try to condense it into a little digestible nugget, and maybe sometimes that's problematic. So here's, here's another quick, very quick point. Is the, is the, the gradual but steady and, and significant decline in voter participation and engagement a result of not having access to the information, or is it the lack of interest on the part of the public, as demonstrated by their lack of engagement, that drives the media to uh, want to focus on 
human interest stories and the human interest aspect of us as politicians, for example, rather than the substance of what we're doing. If I could get, if I could trade um, for one more, you know, uh, in-depth article on an issue that I was working um, for every one of those articles on my recipe for tomato sauce and the fact that I showed <laughs> you up. You take out the seeds, right? I take out the seeds, seeds and the skins. That's what makes you the sauce You couldn't help better, yourself right? out. I'm cooking. Yeah, I couldn't <laughs> do it. So, but you understand what I'm saying. It's like, um, you know, I can get a human interest thing any day of the week. All I have to do is, you know, if somebody finds out that I play the tuba and all of a sudden I've got 10 interviews on, but what is it like playing the tuba and blah, 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 and what made you play the tuba, as opposed to asking me, you know, in depth about my, uh, my position or opinion on a particular public policy matter. Let me join in here as in, a, in add an appendix um, to the president's answer. Several months ago, we began a column on WGBHnews.org by David Bernstein called Dateline DC, and it's focused on the nitty-gritty work that um, the senators and re elected U.S. representatives from all of New England conduct. And I knew there was something there when I talked to David about it, but I've been amazed at in the supposedly do-nothing Washington, D.C., how much, granted small things, but important things get done. And I do think there's a lot to, 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 to what Stan's saying about um, if we don't cover it, it doesn't happen. And that has to filter down to the voter in some way. So let me ask you, since Peter is an editor of some cloud at WGBH, and I, I occasionally can convince people to uh, do certain stories, you know, we've heard a lot about DCF uh, in recent weeks. We've heard a lot about uh, how to combat the opioid uh, slash opiate epidemic. Um, heard a lot about the T. What are some topics that are important that are currently unfolding on Beacon Hill that aren't getting the coverage they should. Just two or three suggestions for us as we um, leave here. Uh, income inequality and income insecurity that is growing as a result of that income inequality and the impact of that on the economy and the impact of that on, on hopelessness and the impact of that hopelessness on the opioid and uh, heroin and substance abuse, and I know that the root of that one is more about the about the uh, opioid pills for pain killing, blah 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 blah. But people who basically self-medicate by whatever means, uh, very various forms of personal abuse that you visit upon yourself as a result of hopelessness. Um, so things of that nature that really help people connect and understand that that we know what's happening. There's this un this unease out there. And people aren't really sure why. And when you start talking the data and you start saying, well, do you realize that since 1978, the standard of living for the vast majority of people in the United States of America, including the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, has been gradually diminishing, almost like putting a frog in a, a pot of boiling water, I mean, of water, and you gradually turn up the heat. The frog is getting uncomfortable. It doesn't know why it's getting uncomfortable. And all of a sudden, the frog is gone. It's dead. So it's this sort of this feeling, what's going on? Why am I feeling this way? And I don't understand it. And then once people understand that, then they might take steps in their own defense and to help themselves along. Or, or even that they're not alone, you know, that, ah. geez, this, you, you know, that 
the news may be bad, but you can take a, a sense of solidarity and that it's not your fault. Yeah, but I don't want them to just to know that it's no, not no, their no. fault. Yeah. I want them to be ready to take action and, and work with their government to take action to make things better. So, you know, will we for the fifth or sixth time in the last 25 years vote down a change in the Massachusetts Constitution that's designed to make the tax system fairer so that people will have the resources in the government to support them and their families, or will they vote against their own interests again, as they've done three or four times in the past, not knowing quite why it doesn't feel like uh, this is a good idea, but just knowing that I got to vote this down. And now if, if people go back and they realize that since 1978, our standard of living has been dropping gradually for the average person, and that they can actually do something about it, will they? Will they? And will they work with us to do that? Senate President, what uh, vote are you talking about? What upcoming vote? So under the Massachusetts Constitution, you cannot have a graduated income tax. Although most states who have an income tax is graduated and the federal tax is graduated. In Massachusetts, it has to be a flat tax. And so for 25, 30 years, people have been trying to change that. And it goes to the ballot, and the people vote it down over and over again. So that's going to potentially appear on the ballot again in 2018, and this time with a different construct, which is a 4% uh, surtax on uh, incomes over a million dollars. And that would produce about $1.9 billion that would be earmarked specifically for education and transportation, two of the things people are asking us most to address. Just briefly, when people do vote uh, down such proposals, why do you think they do it? Uh, well, in, those ca in that particular campaign, I think it um, was two major factors. One, it, three. One is, um, I might be a millionaire someday, and I don't want my taxes to go up. Number two is fear that once they give the legislature permission to do it, it would be unfettered, and we would just keep doing it over and over again and uh, increasing the tax burden beyond what people think is reasonable. And I think the third is that the people who have the most to lose for it under this uh, proposal basically spend a lot of money to convince people that it's bad for them when it's really bad for the people who are paying to try to quash the question. Peter, I think I've talked more than my share here. Do you have any questions you want to run by the Senate President before we let him go? Not at the moment. Well, it's been great visiting with you. Thank you for taking the time to do it. Happy and for to the tour it. of your, your swanky digs here. Well, it's uh, the people's, not mine. I get to use it for a period of time, and I'm having a hell of a time doing it. Thank you. Good career, <laughs>